What do a United States senator and the Latin phrase Police Verso have in common? To learn more, stay tuned to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is my special guest, Dr. Mitchell S. Berger. Dr. Berger is the Kathleen M. Plant Distinguished Professor and Chairman of the Department of Neurological Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. He is an internationally renowned expert on gliomas. He is the Director of the Brain Tumor Surgery Neurosurgical Research Centers and Brain Tumor Research Center at UCSF. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Berger and asking him to share with us some of his thoughts and recommendations regarding the treatment of malignant gliomas. Hi, Dr. Berger, and thanks so much taking the time to be with us today. Bill, it's my pleasure. How are you? I'm great, and I'm really so thrilled to be able to speak to you about this subject. When Senator Kennedy left the hospital, he flashed the thumbs-up sign. Do we have reason to be optimistic? Well, I think there's no question this is a complicated disease. We all realize that, but we have made dramatic progress in this disease in the past five to ten years. I mean, the statistics on outcome, meaning survival and progression-free survival, are significantly improved now as opposed to a decade or two ago. So we've really made a lot of great progress here. What have we learned in the five to ten years about pathogenesis and about the biology of malignant gliomas that has changed the outcome? Well, I think the greatest advance in this field has been our understanding of the components of the human genome. When we take apart the 33 or so thousand genes that we know that comprise the human genome, and then we actually separate that into a cancer genome, we know that there are probably 6,000 or so genes that are principally responsible for driving oncogenesis and maintaining the malignant state of a tumor and all of the biological parameters that are associated with that, for example, angiogenesis, proliferation, invasion, metastasis, etc. So our ability to understand the biology of this tumor has dramatically improved our ability to find targets that are druggable, if you will. And this has been the whole change in the field over the last five to ten years is that we now have the targets within, for example, signaling pathways that we can interrupt or block either alone or in combination that will allow us to shut down pathways that are involved with angiogenesis or invasion. And I think a perfectly good example of that is the impact that Avastin has made as an anti-VEGF or anti-angiogenic monoclonal antibody that blocks VEGF signaling and, of course, angiogenesis. And that's made a dramatic impact in the overall response rates of high-grade gliomas. So the biology has been very important. Is there a difference in the genetics of different gliomas so that you would take the biopsy material and actually study the genome involved? Well, surprisingly, I would say that the genetic alterations in high-grade gliomas are fairly homogeneous. In other words, there are some major players in the field. For example, epidermal growth factor receptor expression is critical. Mutations in P10 overactivation of the PI3 kinase pathway. P53, of course, is seen to be dysregulated in up to 70% of these tumors. So there are some very key 
factors, molecular alterations that we know create the signature or, or the hallmark of this disease, and that's what we're going after in terms of the targets to pharmacologically interrupt. As far as the pathogenesis is concerned, it's still largely an idiopathic disease. We really don't have a lot of clues as to what causes it other than when it's associated with certain genetic syndromes like neurofibromatosis, for example. But for the most part, these are idiopathic diseases that have no known cause. One of the most significant advances in recent years has been the finding of an inverse relationship of allergies to the formation of brain tumors, and that's confirmed by monitoring serum IgE levels in patients who are predisposed to developing gliomas and also as a marker for survival. So the immune system plays a significant role in this disease based on that data, but otherwise it's, it's idiopathic. I'd like to pause to welcome those who are just joining us. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and my guest today is Dr. Mitchell S. Berger, Professor and Chair of Neurosurgery at the University of California, San Francisco, and we're discussing malignant gliomas. Would an initial surgical procedure make an outcome more successful? There's no question about that. There have been a number of significant studies that have been done using quantitative volumetric analysis of extent of resection and for high-grade gliomas, we know that that is a very significant prognostic factor. In other words, extent of resection affects not only progression-free survival, but overall survival. So we know that that's a very important component of the treatment regimen. If a patient came to you, and again, now I'll make it somewhat more nonspecific, but a patient came to you and diagnosis was malignant glioma following surgery, what would your next typical treatment plan be? What should the patient sort of have to prepare themselves for? Well, assuming that the surgical resection is as good as it should be and it's as complete as it should be, then the next phase typically is to start on a program in which radiation is combined with chemotherapy. So typically it is a six-week course of very focused or conformal or shaped radiation given five days a week over six weeks with concomitant chemotherapy in the form of temidar, which is a form of methylating agent that causes mismatch repair as a mechanism. The chemotherapy given during radiation actually enhances the efficacy of radiation as demonstrated in studies. And then according to a large study that was published in the New England Journal within the past few years out of Europe, demonstrated that patients who receive Temidar following their radiation and chemotherapy for six months do significantly better in terms of survival, especially if a certain repair enzyme called alkyltransferase or methylguanine methyltransferase has a promoter region methylation. So in other words, when that enzyme is dysfunctional from methylation, the temidar appears to work significantly better because the deficit or the defect, I should say, in DNA induced by temidar is ineffectively repaired and therefore triggers mismatch repair. 
So the bottom line is that there are some molecular markers that we look at in tumors, such as the methylation status of this repair enzyme, to know whether or not the patient will respond to chemotherapy. But overall, it's radiation for six weeks with concomitant temidar, followed by six months of temidar chemotherapy. Is the chemotherapy given sort of the traditional intravenous way, or is it intra-arterial or directly into the lesion? No, it's, it's typically given orally, and the type and rate of administration is in question at this point, whether or not it's given over several days in a given month cycle or whether it's given just over a few weeks in what we call a very dose-intense regimen. That's still being worked out, but the bottom line is it's given orally. And so Temidor crosses the blood-brain barrier pretty effectively then? Yes. What do you then use as your judgment to how effective it is and whether when you go to the next step? Well, then... Serial MRI scans are done typically about every three months, or I should say probably about every 10 to 12 weeks. We use anatomic imaging, meaning MRI imaging. And on occasion, if we think we see early changes that are not reminiscent of tumor progression, we'll use techniques we call physiologic imaging, such as with MR spectroscopy, which looks at the metabolic pattern of these tumors or cellularity based upon apparent diffusion coefficient. But imaging is the way we determine disease stabilization or progression or even regression. You mentioned IgE. Are there any other biochemical markers that you use? Well, actually there aren't. IgE is really only a marker retrospectively that's been correlated with the status of the immune system, which is linked to glioma formation, as well as overall glioma survival. But unfortunately for this disease, unlike for, say, prostate cancer or colorectal cancer, we really don't have any good serum biomarkers that are reproducible. So it's essentially an imaging follow-up. Is there anything on the horizon, a breakthrough that might be available, say, within the next 6 to 12 months that Senator and other patients should fight to maintain their success? I really think that the key is for all patients who have this disease is that they must be involved with clinical trials. We've learned a significant amount from phase one and phase two clinical trials that involve the signal transduction inhibitors such as the EGFR blockade with erlotinib or some of the other drugs now with the VEGF blockade such as Avastin. So These small molecule inhibitors are becoming very, very important, and we've only gotten to this point because of the use of them in early phase one and phase two studies. I'd like to thank Dr. Mitchell Berger for being my guest. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and we've been discussing malignant gliomas at the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at reachmd.com. Register with promo code radio and receive six months of free streaming audio for your home or office. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MDXM-157. Our thoughts go out to Senator Kennedy and his family with our best wishes for a good outcome. And until next time, I wish you a good day and good health. Oxidized LDL is predictive of metabolic syndrome risk. And disorders within the metabolic syndrome constellation translate to greater risk of kidney stones. With this hour's medical news, I'm Dr. Markina. And I'm Sue Berg.
Research in JAMA finds that while the traditionally measured low-density lipoprotein cholesterol isn't predictive of a patient's risk of developing metabolic syndrome, a person's oxidized LDL concentrations are. Investigators prospectively studied close to 1,900 participants who were recruited between the ages of 18 and 30 and then followed for 20 years. Baseline oxidized LDL concentrations, which were measured by an enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, appear to be predictive of incident metabolic syndrome as early as five years after after follow-up. Oxidized LDL was predictive of three components of metabolic syndrome in particular, abdominal obesity, high fasting glucose, and high triglyceride levels. The American Journal of Kidney Disease has published evidence linking metabolic syndrome to a risk of kidney stones. Researchers conducted a cross-sectional survey of nearly 15,000 American adults, assessing the prevalence of self-reported kidney stones, as well as the presence of any of the criteria that make up the AHA and NHLBI's definition of metabolic syndrome. The study's authors found that participants meeting at least two metabolic syndrome criteria had a 61% increased risk of having a history of kidney stones. Four or more criteria were associated with a -a two-and-a-half-fold increased risk. With Sue Berg, this has been Dr. Mark Kina for ReachMD, XM157 Medical News.